All right, good morning. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Paul and Mark. Appreciate you very much. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 12, what I'd like to continue doing is uh, helping us look at the Word of God and apply it to what's going on in our country, because I'm sure that's on the hearts of all of us in various ways. And God's Word is sufficient for every situation. And I hope that we will see that in fresh and new ways as we look at God's Word on a weekly basis. Revelation chapter 12, last book in the Bible, and there's a reason for that. I don't know about you, but one of the one of my favorite words these days is crazy. Uh, because every time I hear something new being reported, I say crazy. Just can't believe. In a sense, I can. In another sense, I just can't believe all the things that are happening in our country. And it reminded me this morning of something that I shared before when David was small. Um, I don't forget how old he was, but we were talking about uh, the day and what was going to happen during the day, I think, and about how things might unfold. And the term he used instead was, let's see how things unravel today. And when I look at our country, I... I tend to look at it that way. Uh, things seem to be unraveling in front of our eyes. And yet, the book of Revelation is a different perspective on what's going on because the book of Revelation is about the unfolding plan of God that can look like the unraveling of everything around us. And so it's a great, great book to think about and to seek to get some perspective and get some peace from God And so I'd like to read this whole chapter this morning and just highlight some things for us. So Revelation chapter 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. 
For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of God. There's obviously a lot that we could talk about in this passage, but I'd just like to highlight three things for us this morning. First of all, we are in a war between God and Satan. Secondly, satanic weapons include government, religion, and culture. And thirdly, to be on the winning side, we must embrace the winner. And so hopefully you'll find this encouraging. I read something this week about a group uh, called Refuse Fascism. And what caught my eye was not so much what they're trying to do. It doesn't surprise me at all because there are a lot of groups trying to do this. They're basically opposing uh, the Trump Pence administration, and they're going so far as to even talk about trying to remove them from office before the election because they don't think Trump is going to allow himself to be defeated. But one of the things that caught my eye in the article was they said that the reason why they oppose the Trump-Pence administration is because of what they're aiming for. And they say that the Trump-Pence administration is aiming for a white supremacist Christian supremacist, male supremacist, fascist America. And I noted Christian supremacist. There's a lot, there are a lot of other illustrations of this very thing in our culture where more and more you begin to sense there's a undercurrent in all that's going on. And one of those undercurrents is an anti-Christian undercurrent uh, that comes up in a number of different ways. And so I just want to highlight for us that it's helpful to look at what's going on in our country in light of three different levels of reality. There's the level of reality that you might call the practical level where we see what people are doing, whether they're protesting or looting or or whatever it is. Uh, On the practical level, we can see what people are doing. Then you go to the philosophical level, uh, at least why they think they're doing what they're doing. And that's why we've talked about cultural Marxism and and things like that. But we need to go to an even deeper level, beyond the practical and philosophical level. They're all connected, but the most fundamental level is what you might call the primary level. And the primary level is the spiritual level. It's the level that is being reflected in Revelation chapter 12. Ephesians 6 says, "...for our struggle is not against flesh and blood." but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, Paul isn't saying there that we don't have real physical enemies, because at one point uh, he talked about the fact 
uh, to Timothy, he said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. So it wasn't like Paul was saying there aren't real people that you need to give attention to and you need to be careful of. There are. But he's saying that there's a deeper level to what is going on in uh, our country and what's going on around us. And we have to be aware of that. And that's what we see pictured for us in the book of Revelation. The word revelation means unveiling. And ultimately, the unveiling is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ, uh, showing to the, the world that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and he's everything he said he was when he was here. And that's the ultimate unveiling that is going to happen one day, that many people uh, reject that idea, refuse to acknowledge that, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he's unveiled, so to speak, to this world. But there's also the reality of the unveiling of what is to come, because one of the uh, big questions on persecuted believers, for persecuted believers in the first century was, well, if Jesus is enthroned above all things and he's ruling and reigning, what can we expect? What should we expect? And so the, the book of Revelation, in a sense, answers the question of what's going to happen now that Jesus rules and reigns. He's ascended to heaven. He's taken the throne of the universe. So what's going to happen next? And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It also answers the question, what will happen uh, right before Jesus returns? And then what will happen when Jesus returns? And what will happen after Jesus returns? It's an unveiling of what is to come. The story of the Wizard of Oz is an interesting story. Uh, a lot of people have tried to guess if um, there was some kind of religious philosophical statement being made by the writer. And it's interesting uh, when Dorothy and, and the others get to the Wizard of Oz and they begin interacting with him at one point. Um, Oz is speaking in a booming voice and and uh, sounding very godlike. And then all of a sudden, Toto, the little dog, goes and pulls the curtain back. And the booming voice begins to say, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And some people have imagined that maybe the communication is that booming voice that sounds like God is really just a fraudulent man behind the curtain. Well, the truth is, there is a man behind the curtain, and it's the man Christ Jesus, and he is no fraud, and he will be exalted. He will win the day. He is the winner. And we need to understand that all that's going on now is something that we need not fear, but we do need to understand, and that's why God has given us what he's given us in this book. So let me just highlight the three things here just briefly this morning with the time that we have. Uh, the first thing is that we're in a war. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are different people talking about the fact that in our country, we seem to be moving towards civil war. You can hear it from a lot of different people. There was uh, one um, politician who said, last year sometime we are in a civil war 
the suggestion that there's ever going to be civil discourse in this country for the foreseeable future is over. It's going to be total war. You can actually hear that from both public Republicans and Democrats and uh, religious leaders of various sorts. But the reality is that's not the most significant war that might be happening or might be about to happen. The most significant war is the war between God and Satan that's reflected and seen and talked about in this passage. If you note in verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. That's a war that's already taken place. That's a war that actually, if you look closely, is associated with the first coming of Christ. Then in verse 17, though, it says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is an ongoing war. In the first war, Satan was defeated and thrown down to the earth, the Bible says. This verse in verse 17 says, Satan, the dragon, is at war with the rest of her children, which means the church. Do you think about the fact that uh, Satan is at war with you? Um, there are a lot of different ways the Bible talks about life. Sometimes it talks about life as a, as a walk or a journey. We can picture it as maybe a treasure hunt in various ways. You can picture it like uh, as some kind of farming uh, type of situation where you're sowing and reaping. Um, you can picture it as sheep uh, wandering around trying to get in trouble and our shepherd is herding us back in line. Um, so there are all different ways we can look at life. And those are appropriate. We should look at life through the lenses of Scripture in terms of the various ways in which the Bible talks about life. But many times I think we don't think enough about this analogy, that we are in a war. And it's not just an analogy, it's a reality, that we are in a war. And, and the combatants are for, uh, you could say, depending on how you define the combatants. And like everything in Revelation, that's up for debate. But the first um, picture we have is of a pregnant woman. That's the first character in this story. And one way or the other, most people associate the woman with Israel. Some would limit it to simply believing Israel. Uh, others would make it broader than that. But one way or the other, it's very obvious that uh, the reference to the woman is a reference to Israel because the way she's described in verse 1 is actually connected to the dream that Joseph, Joseph relates to his brothers and to his dad in Genesis 37 when he talks about having a dream and he says, Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And so most people understand that the imagery there in Revelation 12 is connected to the imagery in the Old Testament of that dream which related to Israel who had 12 sons. Now, the question is, who is the child? Well, the child is probably even easier to identify because it says in verse 2 that she was with child. She cried out being labor and in pain to give birth. And then in verse 4, it says a dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And that picture is a reference to what happened when Herod sought to kill Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. It goes on to say in verse 5, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The idea of ruling with the rod of iron is referenced in Psalm 2. It's a picture of um, the king that's being installed upon Zion, the son of God. And that same reference is made in Revelation 19.15 with regard to what many people understand to be the return of Christ. And then you also have the reference to her child was caught up to God. So you have the birth of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus and nothing about the life. It's all assumed that everything must have went okay because he's caught up to God. He's caught up to his throne. And that is a picture of the ascension like what we see in Acts chapter one. And so we have Israel, we have Jesus, and then we have even the, even a more clear, uh, identification of the great red dragon. It's interesting that so often through history, you've had stories about dragons. You wonder why that is. I think it has something to do with the spiritual reality behind life. But in verse 3, it talks about the dragon who had seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, which is a picture of authority, government, power, wisdom, those kinds of things. And verse 9, it tells us who the dragon is, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Do you realize we live in a world that's deceived? That should give us pause as we interact with the world and as we hear what the world says about what is true because they're coming from a place of being deceived by the dragon. Well, the rest of the children uh, are referenced in verse 17 and the rest of the children are most often understood to be the church. Some people say the woman is the church as well. But however you picture it, I believe Israel's involved Jesus is involved, Satan's involved, and the church of Jesus Christ is involved. But one of the important things to note in this section is that there's a reference to the fall of Satan, or at least a particular fall of Satan, not the first fall when he rebelled against God, but the fall of Satan when, in a sense, he's kicked out of heaven, thrown down to the earth, and it's all connected to the child, the Son of God being born and being exalted to heaven. And in fact, in his ministry, Jesus in Luke 10 said to the disciples after they came back and they're all excited, they were able to cast out demons. And he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It was the life and ministry and victory of Jesus that overcame Satan and changed everything. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything everything. And so when we think about the war we're in, it's important to understand that we fight a defeated foe. There's no question who's going to win. There's no question, but there is a real war. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised if we're opposed by the world. Sometimes in America, we're so used to having our freedoms and so used to people patting us on the back because we're good Christians that we find it so surprising that the world might actually hate us like Jesus said they would, or that we would be surprised at having to suffer like Peter said. He says in uh, chapter 4 of his first epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Jesus said they will hate me without cause. The world doesn't have to have a good reason to hate us. 
It didn't have a good reason to hate Jesus. It doesn't have to have a good reason to hate us as his followers. It will happen. And so if we get the idea that if we just do certain things, maybe the world won't hate us, it's not true. You can pander to the world all day long, but if you are a true believer of Christ, the world will ultimately show its true colors, its true hatred for Christ and his people. Well, the second thing is that we need to think about the fact that it does say in verse 17 that the dragon was enraged, Satan was enraged for the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, being the church, identified by the phrase, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The question is, how does the dragon do that? Now, since we're so limited on time, I'm not going to read chapter 13 or chapters 17 through 17 and 18, but those chapters help to identify how the dragon makes war on the rest of the children of the woman. It says in verse 1, though, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out up out of the sea. So the dragon is going to use the beast out of the sea, then the beast out of the earth, and then the harlot. One of the things that I've thought a lot about, and probably many of you have too, is just the whole issue of um, cultural Marxism. And um, one of the things that's interesting is that the war that we're in has been going on for a long time. You know from the Bible that's true, but the war especially with regard to um, what's happening now is just the fruit of many, many years of preparation. And... Um, Years ago, there are people that came up with the idea that if we um, get the robes of society, then we can change the world view of society and we can gain the power that we want. We can overthrow the oppressive um, system and we can rebuild it in the way we want it to be. And so the robes of society are like the robes of judges, the robes of professors, the robes of pastors, the robes of politicians. You could add to that the media. They understood that if they used those means, they could begin to undermine our society and they could move toward the overthrow of everything that is, in their opinion, uh, white supremacist, Christian supremacist, and um, male supremacist in our country. Well, these chapters don't talk specifically in those kinds of terms, but it talks in terms that are very related, and I would summarize them in terms of government, religion, and culture, which is very close to what I just said. I'm going to have to be brief, but the beast from the sea, you could argue, is... um, It has an ultimate reference, I believe, but it has a historical reference in every uh, time. And that is the historical reference to every government that overreaches its appropriate jurisdiction. It's a picture of overreaching government that uses its force, uses legal and physical control and oppression to do what it wants to do. The whole idea, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 13, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems. 
on his heads were blasphemous names. Uh, those are all images of power, authority, and um, rule, government. And in fact, it goes on to talk about um, it was like a leopard, uh, like uh, had feet like a bear, had a mouth like a lion. Many people connect that to visions in Daniel, kingdoms that would arise and would ultimately lead to the Roman Empire. And so it's a picture of government. It's a picture of um, pagan government. And um, that is very much um, the situation we're in. On the one hand, we're to honor government because it's ordained by God. And yet we need to understand that Satan uses government to oppress the people of God and to achieve, or seek to achieve at least, his ends. The second uh, thing is the beast from the earth, which begins in uh, verse 11 of chapter 13. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He looked like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He looked harmless. He looked inviting. He looked gentle, but he was out to kill you like a dragon. You don't train those dragons. And it says, it goes on to talk about the fact that he would uh, lead uh, the world to worship the first beast and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Both the first beast and the second beast are pictured as making war with the saints and as killing the saints. And it's the picture of false religion and false philosophy. And you could put secular humanism in that. You could put cultural Marxism in that category. You could put critical race theory in that category. You can put all kinds of things that are being used in our day and time to achieve those ends. Then the last uh, weapon, you've got the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and then the great harlot. And the great harlot is spoken of in chapter 17 and following, talks about in verse 1, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And this woman sits on a scarlet beast. She's clothed in purple and scarlet, which is the um, wardrobe of a prostitute. And it talks about her holding a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, she has a name written, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. And so... Uh, Satan uses pagan government, pagan religion, and pagan culture to oppose the church of God. The picture of the harlot is the picture of fallen human culture. Um, If you read through the chapters that I mentioned, you've got all kinds of references to um, everyday life, music, uh, all kinds of things that we would associate with just normal uh, human culture and that's what we find being pictured here so it's important for us to realize that whether we like it or not we are in a war let me get to the third point the third point is to be on the winning side we must embrace the winner there's a book that came out i think recently i saw on amazon entitled god trump and the 2020 election why he must win, and what's at stake for Christians if he loses. There are a lot of people that are anxious about the election, 
anxious about what will happen if Trump loses, what will happen if Trump wins. That's really not the issue. We need to pray for God to have mercy on us and to give us um, the better of the choices that we have. There's no doubt about that. So and I am praying that way. But ultimately, there are bigger issues involved. You might recall in Daniel, uh, in chapter 3, you've got the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you've got Nebuchadnezzar saying, you must bow down and worship this image. must worship me. And he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. He calls in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Respond by saying, you know what, our God can deliver us. That's the one and only God who can. And we believe he will. But even if we're wrong and he doesn't, we will never worship you. And that is the issue. The issue isn't who loses or wins the election. The issue isn't really do I live or do I die. The issue is, am I faithful to Jesus no matter what? That is the issue. And so don't be anxious about the election. God is sovereign. The plan of God, the perfect plan of God is unfolding as he sees fit. We're to pray. We're to vote. We're to do our due diligence to pursue righteousness but we do not need to be anxious because God's plan is unfolding and we can trust him. And the most important thing for us is to be faithful, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus to the very end. It tells us in verse 11 how these believers overcame him. And that's the good news. It says, even though in a sense Satan was overcoming the saints, in another sense they were overcoming him. In the least important way, Satan overcomes believers. He does put many of them to death. But in the most important way, saints overcome Satan. And in verse 11, it tells us how that is. And they overcame him, the dragon, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. In verse 17 it says, So the dragon was enraged for the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. How do we overcome? We overcome through the blood of the Lamb, which means it's not in our power. It's not because of our 
uh, resolve. It's because we are a purchased people of God. We were bought on Calvary, and we will do no other than to be faithful to Jesus because of the grace of God that's been given us because of our Savior who died for us. They overcame through the blood of the Lamb. But things result from that. The grace of God in our lives results in us maintaining the word of their testimony, it says. That's not their personal testimony about how they came to Jesus. That is the testimony of Jesus. It's the gospel. They refuse to deny Christ and the gospel. They maintain their testimony and they maintain their faith in a resurrection that is yet to come. And in the process of that, it says they hold on to the commandments of God and they do what is right, even if it costs them their lives. They say what is right, even if it costs them their lives. And in fact, they've already decided that their lives aren't meant to be preserved anyway. Because it says they did not love their life even when faced with death. The reality is that those who are victorious in this war hold on to Jesus and they've already died. That's why Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. We, we aren't saved because we take up our cross. We're saved We take up our cross because we're saved, because we have a new heart, and we're willing to love God by laying down our life for God. We're willing to love others by laying down our life for God. And so that's why Paul in Romans 12 could say, by the mercies of God, present yourselves, your lives, your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God and do the will of God. I'm out of time here, but we could go back to the beginning of Revelation and we could look at how every church Jesus addresses, at the end he says, he who overcomes will receive this reward. He who overcomes will receive this reward. He who overcomes will receive this reward. And in 1 John, John says, what overcomes the world? Our faith. Our faith in Jesus. We trust him in life and in death. And why do we trust him? Because it says in Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Why do we trust Jesus? Because he loves us and he's released us from our sins. We don't have to fear death. We've been accepted by God. Let me close with a quote. Someone has said, Now John fixes his eyes firmly on the end time. He concerns himself not with the apparent the apparent triumph of evil, but with its final and complete overthrow. He sees God as casting down every stronghold and hurling his judgments against the wicked. No might of theirs prevails. God is completely triumphant. The government and the world sees Christianity as a threat. It's a threat to everything that they pursue. We don't have to be disturbed by their feeling threatened. We just need to proclaim the gospel, trust in Christ, 
and be ready to lay down our lives by his grace. And know, as it said in that passage, rejoice, O dwellers of heaven. The Lamb has won the victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray that it would be encouraging to us, that it would encourage us to lay down our lives in love for you and in love for others daily. And that if it ever comes to a point in our own lifetime when we have to, in this country, lay down our life for the sake of Christ, through suffering, imprisonment, or even death, I pray that we would be faithful to the end and that we would gladly lay down our life for the one who laid down his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.